Well, our text today comes from Genesis 14, so do do turn there if you would. It is a, a meaty text, so it may be helpful for you to get your eyes on it as I read it as well. Genesis chapter 14 will be in verses 1 through 16, and again, please give your careful attention to the word of God. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Shedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zobam, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea. Twelve years they had served Shedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Shedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephium in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Imam in Sheva Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. In verse 8 now, Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zobam, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddam with Shedorlaomer, king of Elam, title king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddam was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell or hid in them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house. 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. The word of the Lord. And again, Holy Spirit that inspired this very text, we would ask now that you would give us clarity, give us application to the word of God in Christ's name and amen. Well, there are movies that we watch and we are deeply entertained by. There are also movies that we watch that we are deeply impacted and even changed by. We, we leave different would leave impacted and and one of those for me is the movie Saving Private Ryan and it's such an impactful movie 
for several reasons. First, because of the opening scene alone, which recounts D-Day, the invasion on Normandy, and, and because of some new technology and cinematic arts, the immersiveness of that that goes on for, I think, nearly 20 minutes is unparalleled. And you really feel the horror and the adrenaline and the rush of invading Normandy. You feel the fear and the thrill of that moment. But it's also such an impactful movie because of the story itself, which recounts a journey that a band of men go on. And and they were tasked with going behind enemy lines on a special mission to recover and return safely one man, namely soldier private James Ryan. So why have multiple men go to try to save one man at great personal risk? Well, it's because his three brothers have already been killed in the battle. And the army doesn't want the mother to be bereft of her final son. And the movie wrestles with with that, with the morality of, of risking the lives of many to save the life of one. Is this noble? Is, is this reckless? And this is left to us to adjudicate for ourselves as we watch it. This is even what Private Ryan asks himself. The cost that it was to save him was his life worth it. Well, in our text today, we find a, a pretty remarkable parallel to this film, not only because it's, it's a war story, in fact, it's, it's the first war story that we have in all of the scriptures, perhaps the first recorded written war story in, in history, which is pretty awesome. But the only reason that, that Moses, of course, Moses is the spirit-inspired author of Genesis, the only reason that he recounts this story for us is because of the capture and recovery of one specific man. Namely, his nephew, Lot. That's why I've titled the sermon, Saving Nephew Lot. And there's some very important reasons that Moses would have recorded this for the Israelites as they were headed towards the promised land. But before we get to that, I'd like to help us first just get our arms around what in the world did we just read? Because it admittedly kind of feels like a a blender of multi-syllabic names that we really have no idea on the first reading what's going on. It's, it's hard to, to get our arms around. So, so here's the scene. I'm going to just give you the overview. There's, there's essentially a great turf war going on between two rival groups of kings. So we have four Mesopotamian kings on the east, and we're given their names in, in verse 1. So there's Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Shadar Laomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim. So that's over here. And, and interestingly, Shinar is another name for Babylon, and Elisar is another name for Assyria. And these will ultimately be the two kingdoms that overcome and lead into captivity the two kingdoms of Israel. So that's Historically interesting, but anyways, there's four eastern kings, and they're going to do battle with five western kings near the Dead Sea, which are listed in verse 2. I won't recount all of those, but Sodom and Gomorrah are the most prevalent for our purposes, and we'll see special attention given to them. And King Shedarlaomer, the king of Elam, which is Persia, or modern-day Iran, 
He was apparently the, the head honcho of the whole bunch, of all of, all of the kings. And we, and we know that because the kings that rebelled against him had served him for 12 years. And so though they were the kings of their little region, they were under the rule of Shadar Laomer. They were his vassals of some sort. They would have had to give him tributes and, and taxes, which apparently they got sick of. And so they, they broke away. From him. So in the 13th year, they said enough. They rebelled against Shadar Laomer. Now, he surprisingly was not eager to let them go and to just say goodbye to a large section of his dominion. And this is a man who is a pagan king. He has no fear of Yahweh. So might makes right. And so he's going to go after them. But before he gets to them, he and the other three kings that were in his posse, they were apparently in a fighting mood. And so they pick fights all the way down. They do an impressive tour through much of Canaan. And they defeat the whole litany of peoples on, on their way. Now, Genesis 14 doesn't tell us this. But we know that from elsewhere in Scripture that likely all of the peoples that they conquered en route to the real fight were giants in the land. We see this in, in Deuteronomy 2nd. It says that the Amim, which, which is one of the groups, had dwelt there in times past, a, a people as great and numerous and as tall as the Anakim. And they were also regarded as giants. And you'll find in Scripture for all the peoples named, you'll find a similar cross-reference. So, so this just reveals how formidable these four kings in league were when they set their sights on making war. And then, in verses 8 through 11, we get what we could perhaps call a, a showdown at the Salt Sea, or the Dead Sea, where the four eastern kings clash with the western kings, and, and the four whip the five, including Sodom and Gomorrah. And they send them fleeing, and, and they take all of their possessions. So this is a, a thorough and total vanquishing of the four against the five. Now, again, this is fascinating as far as ancient war history goes. But the only reason that we have this preserved throughout history is because of verse 12, which says, They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went on their way. And so you'll, you'll remember from last week that Lot separated himself from, from Abram and was in a vulnerable position. And now he's gotten caught in the machinery of this pagan warfare because he had aligned himself near Sodom. And then the text tells us that one guy managed to escape. And somehow he knows that Lot and Abram are kin. We don't know if this is one of Lot's people. We don't know exactly who escaped. But he goes and he tells Abram that Lot has been captured. And so Abram assembles a small skilled battalion. And then he goes in hot pursuit of the enemy armies. And here we get a, a, a rare glimpse of the patriarch, not just as a man of great faith. But Abram was also a man who was a great warrior king of his people. He, he cleverly and skillfully commands his army, divides them up at night, sets up flanks, and then destroys and chases 
the four armies away. And he outmaneuvers and overpowers them and recovers Lot and all of his stuff and all of the people. And so this is a thorough vanquishing on the other side, a tremendous victory. Project Saving Not Nephew Lot is a great success. So, so that's pretty much the scene. That's, that's what we had read. That's the account of the first battle we have in the Bible. But it's also rich. It's rich with instruction for us as Christians. And so I want to make three observations based on this text in our remaining time. And and the first observation is just going to be a a general principle observation, and then the last two will be more specific to the text itself. So, number one, what can we learn? Well, here we see that the scriptures do not promote pacifism. That's one thing we learn. The scriptures do not promote pacifism. So, So pacifism is the belief that Christians should reject any form of war or armed intervention at any point. That it is always wrong for Christians to go to war or to defend themselves. But clearly that's not what scripture teaches. We, we see here that there is a time and a place to take up arms. But, and this is absolutely key here, We have to do it in a way that is biblically justifiable or or what has been referred to as just war theory throughout history. Christians need to understand what what just war theory is, which sets out clear boundaries. And Abram's actions in the text today are truly a sterling primer on some aspects of just war theory in action. For instance, his conflict had a limited and just aim. Namely, rescue Lot, stop Shadar Laomer. Also, and this is part of just war theory, notice that Abram was not the aggressor, but this was a defensive and protective action on the part of Abram. It was a righteous cause. As Christians, we are not the aggressor. It is never right or justifiable to be aggressive to take. He was defensive and was going to recover what had been taken. Now, some who adhere to pacifism, like many in in my tradition as a family growing up, will understandably point to Christ's words in in Matthew 5, where our Lord tells us to turn the other cheek when we are struck. And and they'll say that that Christ has inaugurated a new understanding of this Um, but, but I would argue that that's a misapplication of, of that text. That, that text is saying, as Christians, we don't retaliate personal insults that come against us. When we are personally offended, we don't retaliate. It's not speaking about what we're speaking about here. However, our Lord also made a whip and threw furniture in the temple courtyard in honor of to defend the dignity of the temple and to defend those who were being fleeced by those at the temple. This was an aggressive act. So yes, we see in our text that there are times when armed intervention is necessary. And so we praise God for our soldiers and we praise God for Nashville police who intervened at Covenant. We were not embarrassed of that. We praise God 
for that. That is good, and that is a righteous thing to do. And as Christians, we need to understand these things biblically and, and intellectually based on what God has said, and we are instructed here today. Abraham's intervention was a lawful, a lawful use of force, and, and specifically for us as men, we have an exhortation. We see that it's noble to be prepared to defend your people and to prepare your sons to do the same. So remember again what his army was comprised of. This is brilliant. It was 318 men that were born in Abram's house who were already trained. And so these were were young men who knew what a weapon felt like in their hand, and they were not looking for a fight. But when one came to them, they were prepared to protect and to defend. And so this is part of our job as men to to have a plan to, to protect our people. Second, that, that was general. Now we're going to get more into the text. This episode shows that the Lord is continuing to prove faithful to the promise that he had made to Abram. Remember the great sevenfold promise that we get in Genesis 12, 3. And among that is, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse them. And my goodness. Do we see that here? Yes, yes, Abram and his men were trained and ready, and that mattered. And there is no way they could have secured the victory on their own. This was the promise of God being fulfilled in his life. Again, this was a far superior, battle-tested, army-slaying band of armies against 319 men, so 318 plus Abram. And they took them out. How? Well, it's because the Lord was on their side. And he is the Lord of hosts. He is the Lord of angel armies. Remember when Peter rashly pulls out his sword and cuts off the servant's ear to protect our Lord, which is understandable, but it wasn't his time. Our Lord says... Do you not know I could call a thousand legions of angels right now if I wanted to? And here we see that he is the Lord of hosts. And I I believe one of the scriptural stories that every Christian should have very ready in our mind and think of often is from 2 Kings 6. And, And this is where the king of Assyria intends to capture Elisha because Elisha keeps thwarting his plans to destroy Israel. And so Elisha's servant wakes up early one morning and he looks out the window and sees that he and his master are completely surrounded by Syrian chariots and and soldiers. And so he goes to Elisha in a panic to make him aware of what appears to be their imminent destruction. And then Elisha peers through the curtains, perhaps casually, and essentially says, we're totally fine. Don't you see we have far more than they do? And the servant likely thought he needed to add a delusional master to his list of woes. But then there's this glorious verse that you should have memorized from 2 Kings 6.17. It says, Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. 
So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And Elisha knew that. Oh, we are totally fine because he saw what we typically can't see, but which is far more real than what we can see. And this reality is just as true now as it was then. As Christians, we walk by faith and not by sight. And since the Lord is for us, nothing can ultimately come against us that wasn't ordained by him and that he will ultimately protect us from, even if that means the protection is in glory. And this also works the opposite way. No matter how strong or how competent or how successful you appear in life, if you have made the Lord your enemy, by refusing to submit to his Messiah. Even if you appear to have temporary success living as your own God, you will be destroyed ultimately, which the great Shedder quickly learned. Psalm 33, 17 through 19, the war horse is a false hope for salvation and by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death. And so we see this vividly here. And when we think of the original readers as well, namely Israel in pursuit to the promised land, we see why Moses would have specifically given them this story. So remember, They're leaving Exodus. They've just been rescued by by the Lord. Well, Genesis 13 is the escape from Exodus. Or was that 12? 12 and 13. And then they're headed towards the promised land where they're going to face giants and armies. On Genesis 14, we see the Lord delivering them into the hand, or uh, delivering the giants into the hands of the Lord. And so this is all very strategic for Israel's history and really maps on brilliantly. And our third and our final observation is this. Notice Abram's remarkable loyalty to Lot. Because remember, Lot is in this predicament because he separated from Abram. He had desired the best portion and this led him into danger near Sodom. So when the man of God brought word to Abram, Abram could have said, well, I hate to hear that for Lot, but what's that have anything to do with me now? It would have been easy and perhaps even understandable for Abram to allow Lot to fend for himself. Let this be a lesson to Lot, especially when Abram's intervention would come at great risk and great expense and great energy. But there is not an ounce of bitterness or pettiness or of even waiting in Abram. He is remarkably loyal. In fact, the text uses the language of brother and not just nephew to tell us how he received the news. Verse four, it says, when Abram heard that his kinsmen, or that could be brother in Hebrew, had been taken captive. And that's that's remarkable to me. Even with the strife and the separation it brought, Abram still saw Lot as brother, and he still went after him when he was 
in danger. He didn't just write him off. He pursued him. Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times. And a brother is born for adversity. And Abram demonstrated this. He stood by his kinsmen. He stood by his brother, not holding his immaturity or his foolishness or his rashness against him. And what a glorious picture this is for us as the church, who are brothers and sisters in Christ, who are called to endure with each other, even when it's difficult. And is this not precisely what the Lord Jesus did for us? Pursuing us with incredible loyalty, even when he had every right in the cosmos to abandon us. Because friends, today we see the gospel shining forth here through Abram. Because like Lot, we all by birth and by choice had pitched our tent in Sodom. And we all, like Lot, were once ensnared and overcome by powers stronger than us. The power of our indwelling sin, the power of our corrupt desires, the lure of the world's deadly lies, and and the snare of satanic temptations, where he hits you in the vulnerable spot that you seem defenseless to. And apart from God's grace, we are enslaved to these things by nature and headed towards God's righteous and eternal judgment. And not only that, by nature, we glory in our sin. We, we celebrate our enslavement, thinking it was our freedom, like Lot. And it was in that very place, when we were held captive, that Jesus Christ, God incarnate, came for us. He came for us as the greater Abram, as our warrior king and our most loyal kinsman redeemer, to rescue us from a foe far stronger than Shadar Laomer, but from Satan and from the death grip of sin and from eternal separation from the Father. And friends, our Lord didn't save us from a comfortable distance. No, he left the glories and comforts of heaven and he entered into our flesh and into our fight for us. And and like Abram, he strategized at night through agonizing prayer in Gethsemane as he contemplated the price our freedom would cost him and only him. And from which he arose and he set his face on the spoils of his victory and was strengthened by the joy that was set before him in what he would accomplish, namely the salvation of his beloved bride that would give glory to his father. So yes, our Lord Jesus is the greater Abram. And in Hebrews 2, the writer explains these things gloriously. Beginning in verse 14, it says there, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Christ himself likewise partook of the same things, became a human in a fallen world, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, that's his death on the cross, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 
And then verse 16 is really sweet in this context. It says, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And now listen to verse 17. It says, therefore, Christ had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Christ had to be made like his brothers. Think about that in light of the text today. Why did Christ take on flesh? Why did he endure the temptations and the sufferings that we do and go to the cross? Because he had to be made like his brothers. Remember when the messenger brought Abram the news that Lot was captured, Abram was moved to respond because this was his kinsman. This was his brother. And so it was with our Lord Jesus Christ. And what amazes me about what the writer of Hebrews says there is that was essentially before he accomplished our salvation through the cross and through the resurrection, he was seeing those he would save as his brothers. I have to be made like my brothers, and I cannot now rest until they are recovered. And this is remarkable loyalty. And as we look in faith to Jesus Christ, our true brother who was born for adversity, He not only leads us more and more out of the captivity of our indwelling sin, but he models for us loyalty and he empowers us moment by moment as we move closer to the promised land to honor one another, to love one another, and to live lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to Christ, our warrior king, and praise be to Christ, our brother and our faithful friend and our Lord and our God. We stand amazed at these things. So often, as Christians who have experienced so much grace, it's easy for us to forget what our plight was, what our estate was apart from grace, namely captivity, chains that we could not break. And so, Lord Jesus, we bless you and we thank you that you came for us and you broke those chains and you still lead us into triumphal procession. And Father, I pray that we would be a people who model well in our relationships the patience and the loyalty and the love that our Lord Jesus Christ models and gives to us. And now we would pray the way our gracious Lord taught us to pray.